0: This is Rob Thomas, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast.
1: Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web, and by Final Draft Scriptwriting Software, the entertainment industry standard for scriptwriting worldwide. My name's Gray Jones and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 32 for Monday, August 29th, 2011. Well today I am so excited to bring you an interview with writer, producer, author, and show creator Rob Thomas. He's the successful author of five novels, he's a screenplay writer. He's sold a pile of pilots, including several shows that went to air. He was the creator of Cupid, Veronica Mars, and most recently, Party Down. And he has a great, great story to tell. We're going to get to his interview in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you, Go to tvwriterpodcast.com for lots of great resources. You'll find the TV Writer Twitter database with over 860 writers now. Um, There's also a a newly expanded uh, section on resource links, uh, helped, of course, by our TV Writer Podcast Summer Contest, thanks to all who entered, and the list of winners is posted on the site there were over $800 worth of prizes given. And uh, so uh, it was a great, great success. And as well, I want to remind you that there is a DSLR page there now that has lots of helpful links in case you want to shoot your own short film or web series or even your own pilot. Hmm, Who knows? Could happen. As a matter of fact, Rob Thomas is going to tell you in a moment about how he shot his own pilot. And he shot it on spec, in other words, nobody was paying him to do it, and that pilot became Party Down. So, it does happen. Uh, lots more in Rob's interview. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer, producer, author Rob Thomas. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. Well, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of Veronica Mars, and uh, I know that you have really had a great career in Hollywood so far, and I I know Phil Klemmer, so uh, um, he's told me a lot about you.
0: Phil is a great guy and, you know, one of my early hires that I'm really proud of.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing uh, super well, and I, I know he's really excited to be back on uh, Chuck. Too bad it's only going for a few more episodes, but five seasons, man. Yeah,
0: yeah, it worked out for him.
1: Yeah, yeah, really well. Um, so so we always roll back way back. And uh, and so you started out in Washington, but you moved pretty quickly to Texas. Would you s- consider yourself a Washington native or a Texan?
0: Uh, well, both of those things probably. I guess I'm technically a Washington native. I, you know, I moved at age 10, so sort of a, my childhood was sort of neatly divided in half between Washington and then we moved to Austin when I was... And I essentially spent the next twenty years there before heading to Hollywood, and and now I'm back in Austin.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So so are you working out of Austin? Are you on a project there, or you're just that's where you got family? And
0: after thirteen years in Los Angeles, I decided to move. You know, I, I came out to LA as a single thirty-year-old, and sort of thirteen years later, I'm a married family man, and and it felt kind of Sane to raise a family in Austin, mm-hmm. and so we, my wife and I, moved the kids back a year and a half ago. And now, for projects, I do a lot of commuting to Los Angeles. I I know the American Airlines Austin L.A. schedule by heart. I'm I'm
1: on those flights a <laughs> lot. Wow! Wow! Very cool. Well, yeah. well, going going back to the earlier years, um, you know, reading about your um, your experience. I, I don't know I, I felt a little bit of sympatical with you and I, I i'll tell you a little uh, more about that in a bit but you you played basketball you played football you played b- bass guitar in in a band <laughs> um and yeah. uh and it it's then you end, ended up working as a teacher later on and it it just seemed and correct me if i'm wrong that um that high school and college were really cool years for you
0: uh, yeah i know and that's sort of uncool um to, to actually have quality high school years that i look back on fondly but largely that's you know that's pretty true i mean i certainly had my share of teen angst but but for the most part those were pretty good years you know as uncool as it may sound i actually did have fun in high school and it was not a horrifying experience for me it, yeah, I had a good time. And then I went off to TCU and I, I played football at TCU for a couple of years before sort of big life changes. I I grew my hair long and shape in weird places and started hanging out in Dallas punk clubs and quit playing football to move back to Austin and play in a rock band and go to UT. Um,
2: uh-huh.
0: So, yeah, I had a an, an artistic awakening for a while at uh, TCU.
1: Uh-huh that's that's because i I went through virtually the exact same thing i mean i was I was in sports all through high school, and then after that um played bass in a rock band we toured across Canada and were on the radio and all sorts of stuff like that um
0: all right it sounds like it sounds like you had a better band than i did
1: <laughs> yeah well i' I'm, I'm sure it was uh about the same level when you're 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 trying hard but not quite getting where you'd like to be. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's uh, you know, sort of nine years of beating our head against the wall. But yeah. um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't trade those years. Uh, I had a good time.
1: Oh yeah. Now you mentioned something on your website about uh, about the idea of a Renaissance man. Was that something that was consciously in your mind uh, during that time?
0: No, it was just. I think I used that on like my book flap copy on my first. Novel, and it mm-hmm. was really just an attempt to be clever, more than a, an actual life goal. But I did have sort of varied interests,
1: mm-hmm. and and so you did uh, graduate college with a with a history degree.
0: Yeah, I sort of intended like I always thought I would be a journalist, and and I was heading towards a double major in journalism and history. But when I transferred from TCU to UT, I had so many journalism hours that I would have had to repeat a bunch to, for UT to give me a journalism degree as well. So I just ended up with a history degree.
1: Hmm. And, and then you taught for, uh, you taught high school level for about five years? I did. Yeah. I taught uh,
0: two years in San Antonio and uh, three years in Austin.
1: Mm-hmm. So what what was that experience like for you? Because you you were still pretty young. You were early twenties at that point, right?
0: Yeah, I was very young. I was twenty three when I started teaching, and I was teaching high school. And you know, I, I think I was still in my I was in in my second year of teaching when I went into the nurse's office and asked if she could give me some aspirin, and she she said. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, honey, but if you, if you have your mom bring some up to school, you can take some. <laughs> um, so I was, yeah, I was a very youthful teacher uh, uh-huh. at the time. You know, I had a good time. Teaching is a tough job and, you know, with lots of high highs and low lows. My parents were both teachers and I did enjoy it. I sort of, you know, I ended up liking writing better and it was certainly more profitable, but I, I didn't leave teaching because I, didn't enjoy it.
1: Hmm. So now around 93, you made the jump to LA. Um, so were you already thinking that you wanted to write at that point or, or was this still journalism? Because I know you worked for Channel One News for what, two or three years?
0: It was just one. And that was the year that I sort of switched from rock band to writing. I'd, I'd been playing in the band for those from the nine years of sort of my last three years of college and my first five or six years of being out of college. And I was teaching high school in Austin and my students I was teaching broadcast journalism as well as advising the newspaper and the yearbook and my students kept winning the channel one video contests. Uh-huh. And so the the people at Channel One became familiar with me and when they wanted to hire like a young, cool teacher to be the liaison between the subscriber schools and the editorial end of the show, they hired me. And it was a big decision for me because it meant leaving the band behind and the dream of, you know, mm. being a rock star. And
2: though yeah.
0: so really, it's the smartest thing that that I could have done. And and so once I moved out to LA and I had all this, you know, I no longer had a creative venture in my life. I, I started writing a novel and it just I wrote a page a day for a year hmm. and sort of after nine years of nothing nothing happening in the band, the, the writing took off very quickly, like I very quickly got a book agent and then very quickly got a book deal and ended up moving back to Austin for three or four years and writing my next three, four novels.
1: Yeah, and you ended up publishing, what, five novels? Uh, four
0: novels and a collection of short stories for Simon and Schuster.
1: Wow, yeah. and uh, and actually, in a lot of circles, you're more known for that than than your TV work.
0: In the young adult land, I mean, it was it was easier to be a big fish in that smaller pond. Although I think you know, in the twenty years since, or however long it's been, I think there's been a real boom in YA fiction. Um, there are a lot of good people working out there, but yeah, I mean, that that was going well for me for a while.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and now it's it's interesting because, and, and I'm sure um, you were uh, informed in your writing by a lot of your experiences. You're having a good experience in, in high school and college, then you're teaching in high school, then Channel One is all based on uh, you know right. young adults, and so a lot of your stories... Then and even later on in, in television, um, you really seem to get that that adolescent voice. Well, I just I
0: think the best training for writing Veronica Mars was you know my years as a high school yearbook teacher. You know because ninety five percent of a, a yearbook staff is, is female, and you know you work with those kids after school and on weekends, and so you. Like, it was just like a crash course in in girl speak. And, you know, know, I'm not even sure that I claimed to have the teen voices in my head as much as feeling like I was keyed into what they worried about, you Mm -hmm. know, what, what their concerns of the day were. Because, I, you know, like when I was writing Veronica Mars, it's a pretty stylized dialogue. I mean, on that show, we let kids say what you know, what they wish they'd say if they got to think about it for a day. You know, it's more like Heather's in the sense that, you know, we're going to let them be clever. And <laughs> Veronica gets to say, you know, she gets to quip
2: oh, a yeah. lot. You know,
0: I, I think shows like Friday Night Lights or Freaks and Geeks did a much better job of actually sounding like real teenagers. Mm. Like we we were always going for a more heightened dialogue style
1: yeah well it, it really really worked and and we'll get we'll get to that in a minute but first um, you uh, you wrote um, well first on on a cartoon network show and then um, you you wrote a feature um, that it, I guess it eventually became fortune cookie so it went through some variations between then um, and that really helped launch your TV career tell me about that
2: this is sort of
0: the the crazy miracle story that that never happens in and so it's nothing I would ever recommend to an aspiring writer because this the odds on this, it was really like hitting the lottery. When, when I was at Channel One, one of my jobs was to run the student contests, and we would have each year there, sort of like a Willy Wonka thing. Students were invited to send in audition tapes and a letter of recommendation And we'd get like 2000 tapes in and we'd pick 10 of these kids to come out to LA and take over the show for a week. And Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, like the anchors at channel one were Lisa Ling and Anderson Cooper and Serena Altruel. I mean, they had really quality people there. And so we'd get all these audition tapes in and, and my job as a low level employee was to simply take the, the 2,000 tapes and get it down to the 100 finalists for
2: mm-hmm. the
0: actual people in power to, to choose. But these, you know, and I was running the contest and I had got these 2,000 letters of recommendation and one of them was addressed specifically to me, to Rob Thomas, manager of school participation. Really? And and that one letter was from Jeff Sagansky, the then president of CBS television. No. Yeah, and... He was recommending his niece and his niece was great. And she ended up getting, uh, she was one of the 10 kids who got picked. And so, you know, a year later when I had uh, my first novel in Bound Galleys, I thought, well, this will just, this is just, uh, the worst it is, is a waste in $3 in postage. And I wrote a letter back to Jessica Ganty e saying, hey, you may remember writing to me last year about your niece. Gosh, she was great. I just sold my first book to Simon and Schuster, but I'm interested in writing for television. If CBS has any shows in production revolving around teen characters, would you mind forwarding this manuscript to the producers? And it's a, it's insane. This would never, I, I can't believe this actually work. And you know uh-huh. to show you how naive I was, I actually believed CBS might have shows about teenage characters <laughs> on them. <Yeah. laughs> but like six months later, I got this call out of the blue from Jeff Sagansky. He had read my book and he said that if my so-called life got picked back up, he was friends with Ed Zwick and he would recommend me for the show. And in the meantime, asked me to send any um, features that I wrote or any screenplays that I'd written and so it was that fortune cookie screenplay that I, I was hired, uh, just somebody wanted to make an indie movie and they were trying to make it for a hundred thousand dollar budget mm-hmm. and they paid me a thousand dollars to write a romantic comedy that could happen in one location with six characters. Wow. And so it, it, it really reads like my dinner with Andre with uh-huh. three couples and And so it's really just page after page of dialogue, but Uh I sent it to Jeff Sagansky and he called me and said, come to New York. I want you to pitch a romantic comedy for television. And he forwarded that script to the producers of Dawson's Creek. And that's how I got my first job. And it's how I got Cupid on the air.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah.
0: it's, It's a crazy story. I really, I went from writing young adult novels in Texas to having a show on ABC in about 14 months.
1: Unbelievable. So, yeah. uh, So moving on to Cupid then. So, you have a show on the air. I mean, how did you handle that? I mean, did they hook you up with a, a an experienced showrunner or were you already running the show or, or how did that happen?
0: You know, all I had was, you know, one season of Dawson's Creek under my belt and in those situations they almost always, or they always put you with an experienced showrunner, and they hired a couple of guys who had run Moonlighting for Mm -hmm. a couple of years, who were very good writers, and those are always weird shotgun marriages when there's a, you know, like a newbie creator of a show and people are brought in to be his boss, Um, Mm -hmm. but at a a certain point, the network decided that they wanted me to run the show and so those guys were let go halfway through that season so by about mid the middle of that season I was running Cupid
2: wow
1: wow and it
0: was it was a huge learning curve I mean it was one of the more intense years of my life doing that for the first time but it was invaluable it was it was great and I had a great director producing partner who really took a ton of the work off my plate. I mean, he sort of ran the production end of it and allowed me to just run the writer's room and deal with scripts.
1: Wow. And, uh, and so after that, now so unfortunately Cupid was canceled after what? 14 episodes. 15, 15, 15.
0: 14 aired, 14 aired here, but we shot 15 and they appear randomly on Mexican television. So, uh, <laughs> i am I've actually bought a, a a set of Cupid that included the full 15, and it's you know it's the funniest thing because it's in English, but I've got it with the Spanish subtitles on.
1: Oh, uh, that's <laughs> that's hilarious. And so so obviously that was uh, probably a hard experience having your show canceled. But it seems like after that you were pretty busy. Um, you get you had a whole bunch of pilots um, going. So tell me about what happened after that.
0: Well, I was busy, but it was largely busy with disaster after disaster. You know, at the end of Cupid, I was in this great position because though the show didn't make it through the second season, it scored well with critics and people dug the show. And David Kelly asked me to come in and run his new show. And it was sort of like momentarily being anointed crown prince of television and I managed to squander that. I, I got a big overall deal at Fox and then left the David Kelly show because of creative differences on that show and then, and then really did pilot for the, ne- pilots for the next four years that did not make it on the air and it was, you know, Veronica Mars came along at the point where I was ready to return to the young adult fiction world. I, if, wow. if, if, if that pilot had not gotten picked up and I finished the Veronica Mars pilot and I was so happy with it that I, I really figured, you know what, if this doesn't get on the air, I'm, I'm done. I I, I felt like I had wasted my mid thirties beating my head against the wall again. And yeah, so after, after like a six or seven year good streak from the time I signed my first book deal to sort of the moment I left the David Kelly Camp things were great, and then it really was sort of four years of making a hot career go very, very cold.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a, you know it's interesting though because there there are a lot of writers who are like career pilot writers, and right. I, I mean the, the 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 business is like each network is is paying for tons and tons and tons and tons of scripts and even shooting a pile of shows that never never get picked up um and so uh, i mean i imagine it it on I, one hand it was frustrating but at the the other on the other hand i'm sure it really um gave you a great education at the same time
0: it was a great education but it wasn't it wasn't much fun and it was you know it was kind of great in the sense that they paid me a lot of money but it, it you know with that comes a lot of pressure and so you know it felt like you know, like an athlete who has a great rookie year and gets the big contract and then underperforms. Mm. Uh, um, it was, it was not great for my psyche. It did feel very much like, uh, like being a flash in the pan. And, and in fact, even when I signed that overall deal with Fox, like I flew with a buddy to Vegas to celebrate that weekend and I picked up a copy of Entertainment Weekly and I flipped the page and there was like a, Full-page story where the lead was how can Hollywood be crying poor when they're willing to pay Unproven showrunners like Rob Thomas this kind of crazy. Running. Oh, no. Yeah.
1: Oh My goodness
0: and then for four years not getting a show on the air. It was, it was bleak.
1: Wow Yeah, but you redeemed yourself with Veronica Mars. Yeah, 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 I mean that Veronica Mars was Awesome and incredibly well received by the critics. Um, tell me about starting that show.
0: I had wanted sort of from the time I got to LA to do a teen show. I'd I'd written all those young adult novels and I felt very comfortable in in that uh genre and and it was sort of Freaks and Geeks was a show that I adored so much that I I just I thought it you can't do a better teen show and and the brilliant the wonderful thing that it did was it really told small stories and and no one was telling small stories. And so I was, I was really rooting for that show. And when it went away, I started, you know, I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to get a teen show picked up, you know, because I, I didn't necessarily want to do something like just overtly soapy. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if freaks and geeks couldn't make it. Then, you know, something hip and cool wasn't going to work. And, and then finally, you know, I sort of, landed on this idea of what if I marry a teen show with a procedural Mm -hmm. and then what kind of procedural could I buy and before I left Texas and came to LA I had sold two new novels to Simon & Schuster like I had pitched them ideas for my next two young adult novels and one of them was called untitled teen detective and in it the hero of the of the show was Keith Mars. And oh, yeah? Keith was the kid. And and I just I went back to that idea and I thought, Well, I can do you know, I can do a case of the week uh with this one. And in that detective novel it was going to be about a guy, you know, very much it was a it was the male Veronica Mars and and it was gonna you know, the novel was going to just investigate this you know, the death of his friend and mm-hmm. and so I thought thematically, I really wanted to hit on this idea of, you know, teens today are this prematurely jaded group, and they see too much before their time, and they're they're robbed of their innocence way too young, and it and it just became a much more interesting story to me to make the detective a girl. Mm. Like I, it, it felt more poignant to me when you tell a story of loss of innocence with with a girl, and. And so I thought, well, this is an idea I can sell, but I wrote it. I, I spec that script, which was great because I wrote it as dark as I wanted. Mm. That pilot is, is you know, another couple degrees darker than what was actually shot. Like, you know, at the end of the pilot, she, she actually realized that her dad had betrayed her in this way. And, and even though, uh, you know, I had a great champion over at UPN, but I mean, they were still questioning whether Veronica could be raped we had already shot the pilot and wow. they were thinking of taking that out so it was a bit of a struggle at the beginning but once the show got on the air UPN then the CW they treated the show very well
1: hmm. yeah it, it, I remember um reading an interview, said that, said that they were really, really behind their show and, and that they didn't exert network control, I guess you would say, as much as some other shows.
0: Well, I don't want to make it sound like we didn't get notes. And in fact, at the beginning of the series, you know, the first, probably any new show, the first five or six episodes, you are getting a lot of notes and everyone is trying to figure out what the show is and everybody has their hands on it. And, and I think it was when the show premiered and, and the reviews came in that things eased up a bit. But I mean, there were very good people giving us notes along the way. It wasn't like they just rubber-stamped everything, but, but they did, creatively, it was kind of a dream experience for a network
1: show. Hmm. I, I mean, just a really, really strong show. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I have a bit of an experience, I would I'd also do a podcast for, for NBC's Chuck, and I find ratings do not equal quality. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a really, really high-quality show, and it doesn't have anything to do with how many people are going to see it, it seems.
0: Right. That is that is true.
1: I'd love to talk to you for hours about Veronica Mars. But uh, you can say, unfortunately, it was canceled after the third season, or you can say, wow, what a privilege. Three great seasons. Um, but uh, after that, um, I, I want to actually jump ahead a little bit, if that's okay, uh, oh, up sure, to yeah. uh, to Party Down. Um, is that uh-huh. jumping too far? Like, is there anything that you'd want to mention in between those two?
0: No, no, that's great. Veronica Mars and Party Down are the two that I like <laughs> talking about.
1: <laughs> okay. And so, yeah. so Party Down, I, I love the fact that you were working with John Enbaum and Dan Etheridge um, again. And uh, now, had, had you worked with them in between or, or...? Well, Dan and I have worked together on many projects.
0: You know, I mean, Dan helped me break the Veronica Mars pilot and was, you know, sort of my producing partner on projects before that, or or at least he would have been had we gotten them off the ground.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but Dan and I have worked together now for many, many years. And Dan and John are our best friends going back to Yale days. Oh, wow. And I become friendly with John and we lost a writer on Veronica Mars in season one and I had hung out a lot with John and liked John a lot and I knew he was a funny guy, but I really largely hired John just on the good faith that he would be a good writer. Uh-huh. And I mean, he was spectacular. I mean, he, I mean, John is just a, a star writer, but it, I'll admit it was a huge relief when he turned in that first Veronica Mars <laughs> and I was
2: yeah. like,
0: oh good. Oh good. My, my instinct here was not off. And then that was, I mean, you know, that experience doing Veronica Mars for three years. I mean, John was just one of those people you could hand a script and know you would get something great back. And I think John may be even more comfortable in, in comedy in a way that, you know, I'm probably slightly more comfortable in drama.
1: Mm-hmm. And so so tell me about coming up with that story and, and, and how you sold it. I had an ex-girlfriend
0: who's British, and she sent me this email saying there's a show... You've got to watch it. It is your thing. You're going to love this. Pivo it and check it out and thank me later. And, and I had been, you know, people had hyped other British comedies to me that like, I don't know, Fab or, or the young ones that I, I mean, I saw their merits, but they weren't really my thing. And then so I, I turned on the show and it was, it was the British version of The Office. Mm. And in that first scene of that show where Ricky Gervais hires like a forklift operator and it's just one take for about three minutes on him.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And, and my jaw was on the floor. And I called John and Dan like the next week and, and Paul Rudd and said, come over and watch this show because I think it may be the best show of all time. Uh-huh. And I, I want to make sure I'm not crazy. And, and so we started getting together each week to watch the British office and we just became fascinated by it. And I, had, I had never had any interest in writing comedy because I didn't think that sort of set up punchline rhythm was mm-hmm. up my alley. I mean, I like plenty of sitcoms. I, lo- I watch a lot of them, but it never felt like what I do. But The Office started to feel like something, well, that's not really writing jokes. You know, that, I mean, it's writing funny, but it's not writing jokes. And it felt like, yeah, like my thing or something I'd be comfortable doing. And so we we just started batting around ideas for, for a show and we thought, you know, the British office is a show about people who've sort of given themselves over to the rat race. Let's do a show about people who chase the dream for too long. Mm. You know, typically in uh, television, you you tell the story of dreamers who make it. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's do the show about a similarly grim show about, about people who don't make it and may never.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And so we just started working on it in spare time and we ended up taking the pitch into hbo and they bought the pitch in the room and we felt very good about it and then we turned in the outline to hbo and they hated it i mean they really they really hated it and and i think when they heard the pitch they thought you know hbo kind of likes to be inside hollywood and i think they thought that our characters would be you know, like catering movie premieres and, you know, Mm. that would be inside the industry. And instead, we turned in a pilot episode that was a Sherman Oaks Neighborhood Homeowners Association potluck. (laughs) And they felt very strongly that that wasn't their thing or their brand. And
2: Mm. so
0: we took it and we resold it at FX and had a great development experience and took it all the way to script. And those guys treated us very well. And I think at the end of the day, they just didn't think it programmed well with It's Always Sunny. They thought the audiences were too different. And Mm -hmm. so they sort of reluctantly let it go. And then it really sat on a shelf for, for three years. Like we, I think we wrote that before Veronica Mars was even on the air. Wow. Um, but we shot it. We ended up shooting the pilot with. Sort of my money in my house, the year that Veronica Mars final season, they cut back our order by two episodes. So instead of doing 22, we did 20. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of Veronica Mars crew with nothing to do. And we sort of made our own independently financed party down pilot with, you know, actors who we knew and loved. Uh, you know, had it gone at HBO, you know, at that point, Paul was going to star in it in as the Henry character but
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know 3 years later he was you know on the verge of movie stardom and Adam Scott's one of Paul's best friends and a, a guy I have known and friend, have been friendly with and we all thought it was perfect for Adam Scott and Ken Marino had been doing a lot of Veronica Mars episodes he'd done one episode it was a character that I thought would be a you know one off in the show and we just loved him so much that he probably ended up doing 10 or 12 episodes as rival private detective Vinnie Van Lowe and, mm-hmm. and Jane Lynch had done a party down and she had just done anchorman, I think with Paul. And so Paul called Jane to see if she would be willing to play that role. And we really, I mean, we sort of, when we were writing the Constance role, we, we were sort of, we sort of had Jane Lynch prototype. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we're lucky enough to actually get her to do it. And we, took that and we shot it and then we shopped that disc all around town and we really we had gotten some interest but no one had made an offer and uh, one of my agents said I think I think stars wants to start programming original comedy and I think they'll like this Mm -hmm. and we showed them the disc and they bought it it was wow you know it came very close to being a lot of money down rain had they not (laughs) had they not picked that up
1: wow Wow very very cool story. Um well we're we're getting close to the end of the time here and uh, I would be shot if I didn't ask you um a few things and one of them is for both party down and Veronica Mars. Um there's been talk of movies. Uh, tell me what's up with those.
0: Really nothing with Veronica Mars. You know Warner Brothers controls the rights to Veronica Mars and so far they they haven't had a lot of interest or uh, any interest in doing a Veronica Mars movie and I can't do that on my own. I do, mm. you know, I do think there are Veronica Mars fans that think that the problem lies in that I haven't written a script or made it happen but mm. I, I have no control over that. The people at Stars have given us permission to make a movie and we have had interest on that and that, we feel hopeful that we have a decent shot of there being a party down movie. The cast all wants to do it. We have permission. There is interest. You know, one thing that we can't control is John now has his own comedy on NBC and I have a comedy pilot at Fox
2: Hmm. it can be
0: it could be tricky if we both have shows on the air Figuring out when and when, when we can do it, but everybody everybody in the party down front wants that to happen, and so we're hoping it can.
1: mm Very, very cool. Well, um, before I let you go, I also have to ask you. Um, this this is a, a TV writing podcast, and um, a lot of people who who listen are very eager to find out how to break into the industry, and and in. I know that you had a uh, probably not the most common path in, but if you were to give advice to writers who want to break in to uh, to find a staff job, um, what would you tell them?
0: Yeah, don't follow my path because it's, <laughs> it's like being the starlet discovered in a soda shop. It, I, I don't know that that happens particularly often. You know, the most common way, like my first two assistants are both big time, well-paid TV writers um it's it's to me it's the most common path in and it makes complete sense you know if you can manage to let, you know get a pa job or better yet a writers assistant job or producers assistant job on a show you're surrounded by people who, you know, you get to see how the job works. First of all, if you're working somebody's desk, you start networking producer's assistants meet agent's assistants who become agents. And, you know, it's like making that, you know, getting to that point where you have people who will read your work. I mean, of course, job one is having great writing samples. And then job two, and hopefully you can do these at the same time, is, is having people who will read those. And so if you're aggressive enough to network and try to land one of those jobs, it's, I think, the most common path I ever hear for people breaking into the business. And certainly, like, my assistants, my former assistants, have done quite well in the business.
2: Hmm.
1: And, uh, and on the creative side, um, you have sold a pile of pilots. You've also had several shows go to series. You've sold books. Um, what advice would you have about generating the ideas for pilots or or other stories.
0: I don't I don't know. Um <laughs> I you know I I'm a consumer of pop culture. I am I read a ton of magazines. I I I'm on you know I read the web all the time and usually it's just pleasure reading but always in my mind I'm thinking what is the next show what is the next show and I just feel like in my normal daily going about my business, those things pop up and I get excited about something and and I will mull it over. And if it's something that sticks in my head, uh, like if I'm still mulling it a few days later, it, it feels like a real idea and it, it sort of takes over. I suppose there's a bit of it that is just, Existing, you know, working in the, in the business a long time, you have an idea of also what will sell and what won't sell. Like right now I'm desperate to do a, a Western. I've been, uh-huh. you when know, I moved back to Texas, I want to shoot something locally. i there I read a couple books. I like, I, I want to do like a, a dark Western about Texas in the 1850s and the Comanche battles. But I also know if I do that, I'm, I'm, I probably have one or two potential buyers and they're long shots. And so uh-huh. I don't know whether I devote four months of my time chasing after a project that would be a long shot to sell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Part
0: one, you know, always be alert for ideas. And part two, know what can possibly sell out there.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking this time and uh, and sharing your story. And uh, it's it's just so fun to hear the behi- behind the scenes for all these uh, cool shows. And and I really wish you luck in uh, in this uh, new comedy and and all the things you're writing. Um, hoping for the next Party Down or Veronica Mars pretty soon.
0: All right. Well, thanks so
1: much. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. Thanks. Greg. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Scriptwriting Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide.